no more than a tremor. It was so slight she thought she had imagined it, though it made her remember her own bag on the back seat. Then there was a positive movement, a smooth but confident slide away from her. She gripped the door. No, no, no! She shouted, as if by her will, her desperate need for this not to happen, she could defy gravity, defy the pull of the loaded boot. She clung to the door, which closed on her shoulder. She span herself round from inside to outside the door, clinging to the edge, but being dragged down with increasing speed to the edge of the water. She was in the water over her knees, where her high-heeled boots hit an underwater ledge. The car responded to the same barrier, wrenching it finally from her fingers, upending it so the bonnet pointed skywards, and it disappeared like a ship going down in an ocean. There seemed to be a lot of noise, great eruptions of air from the drowning car, her sobbing, her heart pounding, her protests. Then everywhere was quiet the silence greater than any she had ever known. The drizzle had increased, but not heavy enough to be called rain, for it fell silently, collecting and running in drops down her cheeks. She was slipping, her heels sinking deeper into the ledge, the icy water up to her thighs. It would be so easy to pull her heels free and let herself slide down. At that moment, drowning felt like the best solution. Chapter 1 The bar of the Eel Trap public house erupted in a deep-throated roar, which would have done credit to any large male-voice choir. The sounds of victory from the Trap Darts team and its supporters overlaid the groans and exasperation of the defeated. So rarely does the outcome of any match depend on the last man's last arrow. The thrower went immediately into the realms of local history. The following demand for service from the bar was hectic. Landlord and landlady, both tall, balanced and fit, were approved by many a customer's glance as they filled glasses, passed brimming pints over the counter, went from till to optics to glass and bottle shelves, fulfilling orders, returning the remarks thrown their way. The visiting crowd finally made their way to their waiting bus, and with a little encouragement from the landlord, John Cannon, the home team departed in twos and threes. With a sense of weary inevitability, he turned to his last customer, just as Liz, his partner, was handing over a small parcel. This would be a piece of ham left from the dart supper sandwiches. Got the newspaper? he asked. The old man flipped his cap onto his head and slapped his pocket. Should have asked, should I? Why make tonight an exception? Get off home or I'll ring up and have them do you for being drunk in charge of a bicycle. Ah, you would and all, bloody London coppers. Depend on it, he shouted after him, and was rewarded by his most faithful customer's cackling laugh. He stood on the doorstep and stretched his arms skywards. It had been a busy night. He shivered and yawned as he watched the red rear light's wavering pattern as Alan Hoskins began the two-mile ride to his waterside cottage. 
John had come to know that these regular sniping remarks about his and Lizzie's past life were tests of his good humour. He was about to turn back inside to Liz, safe being a landlady, instead of a community police sergeant in the Met, when he realised that the rear light was stationary and that he could hear someone shouting. Alan, he said aloud, fallen off his bike. Calling to Liz, he began to run to where the red light was now obviously at ground level. He hoped the old chap hadn't broken anything. He could be aggravating with his endless yarns and habit of saying one thing while meaning exactly the opposite, but he and Liz were both fond of the old Lincolnshire poacher, for that's what he undoubtedly was. John sprinted, calling out that he was coming, but as he got nearer he could hear that Alan was talking as if to someone else, half comforting, half chiding.